Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SubChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China with our indispensable daily newsletter, website, and growing range of podcasts and videos. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from the Seneca South Studio in downtown Durham, North Carolina. Joining me from stately Goldcorn Manor in the genteel outskirts of Nashville, Tennessee, is a man who was so unable to control his excitement in casting his first ever presidential primary ballot that uh, he had to wear adult diapers to the polls, Mr. Jeremy Goldcorn. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy, hey, wait, so did you vote early, man? Are yeah, you to- I voted on, the, I think the first day was possible. You know? All right. See, you I, couldn't I'm, continue your I'm an immigrant. I'm somebody who hasn't had a lot of democracy in my life, so uh, I'm, I'm trying to make up for it. <laughs> Sadly, I arrive in this country to this state, but what can one do? <laughs> uh, you guys vote Super Tuesday like us, right? Yeah. All right, all right. Uh, I will not inquire as to who you voted for for the Democratic race, but I can tell you that I threw mine away because my candidate has, is already out of the race. Oh, well, dang it. Anyway, uh, enough of that. Beijing's relationship with Venezuela has been fascinating to watch, especially in recent years uh, as China has looked with conflicting emotions at this resource-rich but economically devastated country and has tried to anticipate Venezuela's political future. Uh, for Beijing, Venezuela went from the largest recipient of Chinese loans in the whole world to a basket case that was really fraught with all sorts of political risk. Now, I suspect that I am not the only person interested in China who is guilty of not having really kept up with all the vicissitudes of that relationship. But hopefully today's conversation will catch us all up and offer some really valuable insights. Our guest today is Parsifal de Sola Alvarado. Uh, trained as a telecoms engineer, Parsifal lived in China from 2008 to 2015. He holds master's degrees in East Asian studies from Columbia and in Chinese politics and history from SOAS. Uh, since last summer, he has worked in the foreign office of Wang Guaido who, as I I think most of our listeners will know, was named president a little over a year ago by the National Assembly in Venezuela, uh, which contested, of course, the re-election of Nicolas Maduro in 2018. Parsifal is now based in Bogota, Colombia, where the foreign minister of the Guaido government actually resides. Uh, He set up a China desk there and is pushing now to win Beijing over to the Guaido side. Parsifal, thank you so much for taking the time and welcome to Seneca. Uh, thank you very much for having me, Kaiser. Possible. Why don't we start with the very basics about where China-Venezuela relations were in terms of uh, perhaps levels of investment, trade volume, and the political re- relationship back before Hugo Chavez came to power in 1999? Uh, sure thing. Okay, well, uh, much like in the rest of the region, China's relationship with Latin America in general was pretty much... Uh, in the, let's say, the, the, the back doors of Chinese foreign policy, the commercial relationship was at a minimum. Uh, 
Venezuela and China bilateral uh, uh, commerce was at around a hundred million dollars uh, in <laughs> 1999, so basically insignificant. Uh, but it was much. Uh, it was uh, the same thing throughout the rest of the region. The only, let's say, close relationship, political relationship that China had with a country in Latin America was uh, was with Cuba, uh, primarily as a let's say a legacy of the of the Cold War. Um, so in 1999, Hugo Chavez wins the election by a landslide, comes into power, and uh, he initiates this uh, transition where our, uh, we had a, a long uh, relationship with the United States of, of um, promoting, well, uh, democracy in the region. We were uh, uh, the, we were close allies with the United States, and uh, Hugo Chavez uh, began this change where he started uh, getting closer to countries like China, like Russia, uh, countries in the Middle East, and this is where this newfound relationship with Beijing starts taking place in the beginnings of the 2000s. I, I always like to tell the story about. Do you guys remember a Tianhua? He was the um, the director of the the, the Chinese the China Development Bank. So uh, this this whole thing started back in 2004 when uh, Chen he was uh, an official uh, visit to Havana and he was he th this is actually a I got it from an interview that Chen gave uh, Tsai Xin back in August uh, last year. You should got, you guys should definitely check it out. Very rare interview where he talks about the development uh, of the the foreign investments uh, carried out through the bank. And uh, so, well, he talks about this visit that he made in July 2004, where the purpose of his trip was to, uh, well, hear out the, the Cuban government about how to proceed with the um, let's say the expansion of the, of, of the investments of the bank in Latin America, mm -hmm. and and Chen uh, immediately brings up the name of Hugo Chavez, which Chen was completely unaware of, and uh, and I'm paraphrasing here. So Castro describes Hugo Chavez as the Napoleon, the Latin American Napoleon of the 20th century. And uh, he tells him that Chavez was going to change the political and the geopolitical landscape of the region. And uh, well, this obviously uh, uh, grabs Chen by surprise. He didn't know who Chavez was at the time. <laughs> and well, point being, just five months later, in six months later, in December, the same year, uh, Chen was in Caracas signing the first agreements between the Venezuelan government and uh, the Chinese government. Wow. So this uh, is where everything, you know, uh, starts snowballing down to, to, to where we are today. Uh, no, extremely close, but you have to put that into context. Cause, okay. Yeah, so uh, between 2007 and 2017, those 10 years, uh, China lent Latin American countries from Mexico all the way down to to Argentina, a total of 140 between 145 and 150 billion dollars, out of which, as as you as you said, 67 billion went only to Venezuela. So this wow. gives you an, an idea. It's almost it's almost half of the entire loan loan portfolio of of of, of the of China to Latin America. So yeah, number two is Brazil, right? Number two is Brazil, and that was only less than half as much as went to Venezuela, right? Yeah, yeah, around sixteen to seventeen billion, more or less. So. Uh, yeah, there was the, the, this, this, this huge difference between the importance that, uh, uh, if, if we measure it in terms of loans, 
that China gave Venezuela in comparison to the rest of the region. In terms of of, of the of the re, the close relationship that they developed, uh, Chavez visited China a total of six times uh, as president. That is, this is far more than any other Latin American head of state. And uh, Maduro, while in office, has gone three times, and uh, he was foreign minister of of, of Chavez for. Uh, uh, around two years, and he also went uh, a couple of times as foreign minister. So, uh, uh, and well, it, it goes, it's the same the other way around. Uh, even Jiang Zemin visited China, visited Venezuela, sorry, in uh, 99. Uh, countless delegations, Hu Jintao visited, Xi Jinping has gone twice. So, yes, this, there's, uh, uh, this close relationship was developed at a with its peak at around 2011 2012 um, just one year prior to to Chavez passing away in late 2012 wow a um, during those years the the height of the sort of Chavez coziness boom uh, the investments and loans that uh, China made is it right that they were mostly in the extractive industries uh, yeah, well, th- w- there's one thing, uh, one important thing to point out. Uh, there was no investment in Venezuela. This was all loans. Those 67 billion were loans for, for cash. Uh, sorry, oil for cash. Uh, so ah, it's, uh. it, this is very important because people tend to, to mix the two. And this has a bunch of important implications for the Venezuelan government because since it's being described as in uh, as um, you know what well, sorry uh, let me back uh, back up a little bit uh, in venezuela it is described as investment because it, that way they could bypass uh congress well parliament in the venezuelan case so it does all all those 67 billion weren't approved by the venezuelan parliament uh, even though back then the, the entire parliament was uh, in in chavez's uh, uh, uh controlled by chavez's party but the thing uh, so uh, but in in terms of, of in practical terms it it was actually loans we were uh, that were uh channeled through Venezuela's state-owned oil company, PDVSA. So the Venezuelan government was basically compromising the future earnings of the state-owned company in order to pay back Chinese loans. So that had an important, uh, uh, the, the Venezuelan government stopped receiving uh, uh, the money that was supposed to receive from the, from the sale of oil in the future because it was paying back Chinese loans. So th- there's a very important distinction between, you know, uh, uh, labeling the, the Chinese money as investment or as loans. Right, right. That makes sense. And now, now that we've made that distinction clear, is it then true that these loans were all in the extractive industries and they were all backed up by a promise to pay back in oil, essentially? Okay, well, not uh, a big part of it was in the extractive industries. We do not have uh, specific numbers due to the well, the, the lack of transparency. We do not have access to many of the contracts that were signed between uh, uh, the Venezuela and the Chinese government. But uh, best estimates are that around 60% of the loans were earmarked for the extractive industry, par- primarily oil. And minerals, rare earths, uh, Venezuela has, uh, well, 
untapped, a very large untapped reserve of rare earths uh, that we still don't know exactly how big they are. But the Chinese are definitely participating in, in that sector. Right, right. I'm curious, Parsifal, what were popular attitudes toward China like during Chavez's time? Uh, did he consider himself really to be kind of ideologically aligned with China? I mean, besides, of course, the, the fact that notionally they were both communist. I, I, I'm curious because China during, especially during that time, I mean, we're talking about the years of Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao and uh, China was not exactly an exemplary practitioner of Orthodox Marxism-Leninism, but uh, what was the ideological component and what was popular attitudes all about toward China? Uh, from the Venezuelan side, uh, uh, from the Venezuelan government side, uh, yes, that there was de definitely an affinity uh, that they were well, both leftist governments. Um, Chavez, well, he uh, he he. He praised a lot the the, the well the, the communist revolution in China. He was kind of this this uh, a promoter of, of of Chinese culture, Chinese uh, political culture in Venezuela. So th there was definitely an affinity, and I think well Beijing obviously was happy to be endorsed in that way by 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 the Chavez regime. That makes sense. What about popular ideas toward? I mean, how, what did the people think about China during that time? Uh, no, in general. The, uh, 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 let's say public opinion uh, regarding the Chinese has always been uh, has always been good and generally positive, and it has remained so to this day. It hasn't actually changed much because, uh, well, given the the, the, the current uh, uh, crisis scenario in Venezuela, uh, China has taken a, a, a like a, a backstage role. Uh, and uh, they're, they're not being blamed in any way for, for what's, at least I'm talking about a, at a, a society level, not, not, right, not in right. political circles. Right, right. Uh, um, and what about um, the, their actual ability, Beijing's actual ability to influence political decision making in Venezuela during the Chavez years? Besides the massive loans, were there other ways that uh, the Communist Party of China helped Chavez? Uh, did they support Venezuela in the UN on any of its diplomatic issues or such like? Uh, no, for sure. The, the, the support from the, from the Chinese government has been mostly in uh, countering uh, uh, international criticism about uh, the growing nat the authoritarian nature first during, uh, during Chavez and now uh, during Maduro. So in terms of international support, yes, Beijing has played a role. Internally, not so much. I think they, they've actually have stuck to their uh, rhetoric about non-intervention. It, it has been mostly how the loans have influenced the political decision-making internally compared to any, let's say, direct involvement of, of, of Chinese advisory uh, 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 as an advisor role that it would influence. But uh, no, no, in general terms, I think in domestic policy has been more how the Venezuelan government used those loans to, to uh, well, uh, basically to help them same power since Venezuela has been basically left out of international borrowing markets. So it definitely it has been financial oxygen for the regime. But... <laughs> The di direct influence in political decision making, uh, uh, we, we haven't seen any evidence of it. The People's Republic of China, making the world safe for autocracy since 1949. Uh, that's a 
really uh, very consistent with a lot of their, their policies. Well, I mean, Chavez died before Xi Jinping really had his hands firmly on the reins uh, before he launched the, the Belt and Road Initiative, too. So after 2013, so during Maduro's years in power, was there really a big increase in Chinese investment or trade? And how did maybe Venezuela compare to the rest of the region in terms of its significance for China? I know that we've said the, the loans really you know, outmatch anything that was to the rest of the region, but did Venezuela continue to be the most important destination uh, for outbound, uh, I guess, lending? Uh, no, no, we definitely see a change with uh, Xi Jinping, but I think it was more uh, 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 related to um, the fact that they, they, they've they been growing impatient with the way uh, Chavez was uh, spending, the, uh, spending the Chinese funds. There was no accountability whatsoever, and this goes all the way back to 2012. Uh, you, could, um, you could go back and look at a... a an article by Kejel Vias in the Wall Street Journal back in 2012, where some uh, conversations leaked from the Chinese embassy in Caracas, uh, where they were uh, basically fed up with the with the way that uh, the ben- Sino-Venezuelan fund ha- had been handled. And that was exactly the last um, election of Hugo Chavez. And... Uh, to give you an idea, the Venezuelan fund at the Sino-Venezuelan fund at the time had around eight, uh, twenty billion dollars, and eight billion of those disappeared basically out of thin air with with no uh, paper trail. Uh, wow! And, and the Chinese obviously complained about well, well, where the money had gone. Uh, this was back in 2012, so I think that was like the the beginning of the end of of, of that uh, honeymoon period between uh, both administrations. <laughs> you said eight billion out of twenty billion had disappeared. Yeah, that's that's some epic level kleptocracy there. <laughs> that's amazing. So and and I think that 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 uh, uh, 2011 2012, especially after Chavez died, because uh, Maduro hasn't well, he doesn't have the the persona that that Chavez had. Uh, Venezuela lost all a big part of its its political influence in the region, and I think. Uh, that goes hand in hand with uh, China's uh, loss of interest in Venezuela. I've got to say, it's difficult not to think, you know, a little bit, I told you so. I mean, you give an economically illiterate thug uh, a boatload of free money and, you know, you wonder why (laughs) this happens. (laughs) But I don't know. I guess the Communist Party's taken a little while to kind of understand the real world, and now they're learning fast. Um, Definitely, yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Um, Possible on a slightly different topic. I believe there's a substantial ethnically Chinese population in Venezuela, maybe as much as half a million. Uh, although most of them came from Guangdong before uh, the founding of the People's Republic. Is that correct? And do they uh, form any kind of political force in Venezuela? Hmm. Good question. Uh, yeah, well, at, at its peak, uh, well, before Chavez, Venezuela already had an important Chinese diaspora in the country. It was around 200, best estimates are that around 200,000 Chinese lived in Venezuela uh, by the late 1990s. And this skyrocketed to around 600,000 at its peak in 2011, 2012. Wow. 
most of so so you had two generations of Chinese. You had a lot of of, of lower income Chinese from the south, especially from uh, Guangdong province, as you, as you mentioned, Jeremy. And then you had this second wave that started arriving in the country around 2005, 2006, with the opening of relationship between the both countries, where a new, uh, like younger professional generation started of, of mostly people related to, well, Huawei, ZTE, CNPC, so Chinese companies that started operating in Venezuela. So there was an influx of professional Chinese that came into the country on that second half of the last decade. I can't imagine that many of them must have stuck around once the economy started to implode, though. Uh, and then, you know, with hyperinflation, you know, over 2,300% inflation rate. What's happened to that second wave of Chinese in the last few years? And no, most of them left, uh, not to say all of them, but uh, according to our to our uh, best estimates, um, yeah, around 400,000 of them left. So there's, <laughs> we, we went back to the 200,000 prior to, to Chavez. So oh no, yeah, they, they, they joined the Venezuelan diaspora in, in, in leaving the country. And it's, it's kind of funny because uh, a lot of them uh, actually went to other Latin American countries. We, we still have no data, no statistics on this, but just uh, uh, last year in November, I was in, in Santiago de Chile, and it turns out that, that the new uh, Chinese restaurants being opened were these Venezuelan Chinese food restaurants uh-huh. owned by you know the, 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 the Chinese community that left Caracas and uh, they were hiring Venezuelans in order to help them. So it's, 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 it's a, an, uh, an interesting you know, social aspect that they didn't actually go back to China and they, they started moving to other Latin American countries. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> uh, Possible China was in the process of building what would have been South America's first high-speed rail system, uh, but abandoned the project. Do you know when that project got started and when and why uh, construction stopped? Okay. Well, first of all, construction. If we if we are if we talk in, in practical terms, construction construction actually didn't start. It was very very basic. They set up these uh, towns of Chinese workers, and they started setting up the the, the like the different bases for uh, uh, the development of the the supposed first uh, high speed rail of the region. Uh, I, Again, this is it's very hard to uh, have an idea of, of, of uh, the level of investment uh, or the level of money that went into the project. It could go. It's our estimates are between four billion and seven billion. So it's there's a huge uh, a window there. But the point being, not even one station. I'm talking. They didn't even lay down the tracks. We have interviews for, uh, from uh, uh, Chinese workers at the time that they, they told us that they, uh, I'm talking about uh, a, a bit, not, not uh, uh, construction workers, but at the level of, uh, of uh, uh, the engineering uh, uh, circle of the, of the project. And uh, yeah, they, they were amazed of, of the level of, of, of corruption, the level of, of lack of accountability from, from local authorities. Because I remember this one guy that was amazed that they, they set up the toilets, the bathrooms for the workers, and the next day they were gone. Ah, oh my God. Yeah, they, they, I think they really had no idea what they were getting themselves into. And 
the supposed first bullet train ended up uh, in ruins. And you, you can actually go to, if you check up in Reuters, there's photographs of the, the, the well, the remains of what would have been the the rail line. What what was the route supposed to be from where to where? Uh, it was it was supposed to be around, uh, if I'm not mistaken, around a thousand kilometers long. So it, uh, Venezuela doesn't have a rail system. Okay, so the the train line was supposed to um, go across the country east to west, uh, and then have some uh, uh, branches along the the. the Venezuelan central plains, but it was supposed to be between 1,000 and 1,200 kilometers uh, in length. Uh-huh. So, uh, all, am I understanding you correctly that a problem or maybe the major problem seems to be that while the Chinese were trying to build this thing, the local authorities or local criminals were just stealing all the stuff, so they were unable to make progress. Is that, uh, is that correct? Uh, yeah, that's... I mean, that's- I, I assume there must be other reasons too, including perhaps the Chinese <laughs> tendency to build a gate and a, you know, the front door of a project, but you know, wait until the rest of the money comes through to actually follow through. That may have had something to do with it too. But no, the, the, there's the, <laughs> I completely. There were both both things were present. Uh, the, the, another important aspect of of the loans is that a big part of them uh, were, was actually in renminbi. It was not in U.S. dollars. Uh, so obviously, where where can you spend the renminbi uh, back in China? That so they guaranteed the participation of Chinese companies in the construction projects, um, and uh, so there were a lot of intermediaries that were supposed to let's say uh, connect the Venezuelan projects to Chinese companies. So that lent itself to a lot of corruption as well, uh, a lot of of overpricing. In in the uh, in the materials and in the the, the well the contracts uh, per se uh, and then we we would have to the, the, the whole thing about the currency control currency exchange control in Venezuela that is still present to this day that uh, you had a subsidized U.S. dollar that you if if you had access to them through government they would be around like they fluctuated between three to five times below the let's say the black market the real value of the u.s dollar so that in conjunction with the chinese loans uh, you could uh i'll give you an example you could uh, charge a million dollars for a specific uh, uh, set of, of, of products but if you exchanged that at the local controlled uh, rate, it would have been much three or four times less and someone would eventually go to the black market and sell it and win, you know, uh, $500,000, $600,000 for just having access to subsidized U.S. dollars in the Venezuela uh, uh, exchange system. It's a, it's a witch's brew of sort of jo- almost like p- parody banana republic problems isn't it yeah totally totally uh, um and this this is one of the main reasons of the crisis that we suffer today that uh, uh this was only possible because of this of the the, the commodity boom um j- just imagine this as prior to chavez the 40 44 decades uh, of a democracy in venezuela which started in the in the 1950s the average uh, oil barrel was nine dollars per barrel Oh, in, in over four decades. And during Chavez's 13 years in office, it was 92, 93. 
So imagine the amount of money that came into the country. It was, it was, it, we had a high on petrodollars that, uh, well, permitted this, 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 this kind of, uh, uh, yeah, as you said, this banana republic with uh, no rule of law, where, where, where uh, everyone was allowed to, to take advantage of this, this uh, uh, influx of petrodollars facilitated by the commodity boom. Well, I think that's an excellent, easy explanation for how things are the way they are. But I've also heard it suggested that China had some fault in this. There was a Financial Times op-ed from about five years ago that, that basically made that case. Do you, do you agree that, that China, I think the way that they, they put it in an op-ed was that China supplied the rope with which the Venezuelan economy then hanged itself? Uh, yeah, no, I think that, that, that there's definitely a lot of that. Um it, just well, talking about uh, going back to the example I gave you about the the, the eight billion dollars that disappeared from the fund, those were used basically for Chavez's re-election. So uh, in terms, well, uh, incrementing social expenditure, uh, subsidizing food, uh, subsidizing uh, uh, services, uh, and that's basically where it went throughout the 2012. So yes, it allowed uh, Venezuela to continue spending as if the, uh, I think the actually one, maybe we're talking about the same article in FT. Yeah, by Ricardo Hausmann, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Uh, right. that, that Venezuela was spending as if the, the, the barrel was at 190 when it was already starting to to depreciate. Huh. What was the reaction of uh, the Chinese policy banks, uh, CDB and Exim Bank, once, once the Venezuelan economy started to collapse? Did they demand that uh, Maduro settle up or were they willing to restructure or did they write some of them off? Uh, no, well, there was a, in 2014, the CBD actually gave an extension uh, of two years with a payment of interest. So um, this, well, gave some leeway to, to the Venezuelan government uh, to, well, basically stay afloat financially. Uh, so they've actually tried to help uh, uh, the, the Maduro regime stay afloat, but without extending new loans. There's only been two, uh, let me see, yeah, two new ones, I think. The last one was in 2017 yeah, that's right. for $2 billion. And there was actually one in 2018 when Maduro visited Beijing in September that year that we, we actually have no evidence that there was any exchange of hard currency. Uh, last year, there was, there was some like Chinese jumbo planes that arrived in Caracas uh, with uh, medicine, food, uh, basic supplies. But in terms of hard currency, there's no evidence that the money made it to the Venezuelan Central Bank. So that last loan that Maduro uh, uh, um, uh, talked about uh, 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 back in 2018, and in, in 2018, there's no um, there's no evidence that uh, uh, there was any new cash involved. So, Parsifal, I want to get to this, what I think is sort of the heart of of what I think is most interesting that's happening right now, which is China's strategy in hedging between Maduro and, and Juan Guaido. Uh, can you first talk about how Beijing reacted to the events of January 2019? I mean, had they already actually been in contact? Uh, with anyone in the opposition to Maduro? I mean, because before Guaido became the focus of, you know, the opposition, you had Enrique Capriles, who was this two-time opposition presidential candidate who's known for being quite 
vocally critical about Chavez and Maduro and their ties to China. Uh, but so has he changed his tune? What's how are how is that side your side? Uh, how have they been courting Beijing and uh, to what effect? Okay, so the the, the Chinese uh, uh, um, appraisement of the opposition has actually been pretty interesting. So yeah, yeah. Uh, Chavez, uh, the the Chavez party the, uh, um, had control of parliament. Uh, for for around 15 years, and back in 2017, um, the opposition took control of parliament. It was the first elections that the opposition wins in over uh, in over a decade, and uh, right after the the electoral win of the opposition, Beijing invited, obviously through an age through an NGO. It was not a, a an official invite. Uh, they invited the leaders of parliament uh, to Beijing. Uh, for around a week, um, and that included uh, the current uh, Venezuelan foreign minister Julio Borges. Um, he was part. He was he was a member of parliament at the time. So they, they were actually the, the main message. Of, they didn't go into specific policies. They were just courting the Venezuelan opposition and mm-hmm. letting them know that that China wasn't going away. It, it was. It was not a threat, but it was basically, look, it won't be uh, easy to get rid of us. That that was the main message of that gathering back in 2017. Uh, it was very courteous, of course, uh, um, but um, but it was it, it kind of uh, exemplifies uh, the um, um, skepticism, uh, Beijing's skepticism towards the, the 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 opposition and its close relationship with Washington. Okay, well, what about the opposition itself and its attitude toward Beijing? Has its tune shifted from maybe more critical to less critical? Or are they still keeping that sort of level of criticism going? No, actually, the the, the Venezuelan opposition has has been pretty open about uh, engaging with Beijing. They haven't, uh, there hasn't been any uh, antagonism in the relationship. Uh, actually, if, if uh, there was... Um, uh, Juan Guaido, uh, he penned an article in Bloomberg back in April uh, where he, uh, well, is sending a message to Beijing talking about uh, that we want, uh, that the Venezuelan interim government wants to engage. They want to talk about the future relationship. They want to talk about, uh, well, Chinese loans. Um, so I think it's 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 more, on, uh, the main message is that we, as in the interim government, are the antidote to, well, the Chinese frustrations in Venezuela. It's like if they want rule of law, if they want economic stability, if they want political stability, uh, a change of government through democratic means is the only way to actually achieve that. Hmm. Yeah. A I know, well, let me add one thing, which is very interesting about how the Chinese reacted in February uh, when Guaido uh, was, was uh, uh, pronounced interim president. Uh, actually, Chinese operations, we have information uh, from, from sources inside Venezuela that uh, Chinese operations, ex- especially in the extractive sectors, uh, stopped operations. Like the main Chinese companies in Venezuela stopped operations for over a month. We, we gathered this from, from uh, journalistic work that have been uh, carrying out in Venezuela, that they, well, they, they didn't know how to react to what was going on. So they say it, they basically were hedging, let's say, Put this 
my appreciation is that they wanted to, you know, lay low and see how things eventually evolved. And if Waito were to come up uh, on top, then they would, you know, basically uh, shift their uh, communication to the to the new government. After a month, they actually they restarted everything, so everything went back to quote unquote normal. I was just going to say, uh, possible. Uh, in terms of their reaction, uh, what do you think it's guided by? I, I'm asking specifically about how much expertise Beijing has on Latin American affairs. Uh, I know, you know, many people would probably be surprised to know how many Chinese experts the government has working on Africa, you know, either directly for the government or in some kind of uh, think tank associated with an academic institution or, or another government organization. Uh, you know, many of these people I know in Africa are trained in uh, local languages, even minority languages, you mm. know, like Afrikaans and Kosa. So uh, do you know um, about the Chinese government's expertise in, in South America, Latin America? How well informed are they? I think nowadays they've actually learned a lot, precisely because of, of, of their experience in Venezuela. In terms of the amount of Chinese expats, professional expats uh, in the political sphere, China's approach in Latin America has been very top-down. So uh, it has been more about engaging with the decision-making community in the different countries more than a bottom-up, let's say, uh, uh, where the their knowledge came from um, uh, Chinese companies operating in the region. Uh, right. they, they, right. they have actually... Uh, uh, um, Especially in the last five six years, they've uh, the ambassadors that they have appointed in the region have, uh, uh, at, well, at least decades, a decade or two of expertise in Latin American politics. They all speak Spanish, so there's been a, 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 a prof professionalization of the uh, diplomatic workforce, Chinese diplomatic workforce in the region. Fascinating. So the op-ed piece in the FT that we were just talking about, um, it was interesting that this piece was written, as you said, by Ricardo Hausman. As it happens, that's the same man that the, the Juan Guaido government appointed to be governor for Venezuela of the IADB, the Inter-American Development Bank. But China did not grant a visa for uh, Ricardo Hausman to visit China to take part. Um, you have a very interesting take on this, I understand. Um it's not maybe as pessimistic as one might conclude just knowing that Hasman's visa had been denied. What's going on here? Okay, so, uh, well, let's go back to, to, to that event. That, that was supposed to be the 10th anniversary of China joining the IADB. Right. Uh, they, they had been preparing this for months. It was going to be this huge event in, in Guangdong. And, um, um, well, they, they had invited... Uh, well, people from the different governments in Latin America, a lot of people from the business community. So, yeah, th this was going to be a, one of those pompous Chinese events. <laughs> and and then, well, Venezuela gets in the middle of the way. Uh, as you rightly mentioned, Ricardo Hausmann was appointed as uh, by the interim presidency as the representative at the IADB. Uh, and uh when applying for a visa to attend the event, it was denied by the Chinese government under the the argument that uh, they were not getting, they were not going to get involved in in the Venezuelan internal affairs. That the right. Maduro regime had a point, its own appointment, so that 
this was something that should have been, uh, let's say, internally resolved and then decided who was going to go. Um, but so the, the the interesting thing about the the, the reaction of the, the Chinese side was that this this must have been a huge loose face scenario for them in China, just canceling the event because of one participant. And the reaction, at least publicly, was that um, uh, well they, that this wasn't a setback, that the, the event would be rescheduled. They didn't blame anyone, uh, even though there was a the the decision to to push let's say the pronouncement of Hausman was backed by by the U.S. Uh, and still there wasn't any you know uh, scapegoating or or blaming uh, the United States for what was going on, which it tells you a lot about Chinese position vis-a-vis -vis the Maduro regime. Uh, they didn't they didn't uh, vouch for Maduro's appointed uh, uh, person at the IADB. They simply said. Let's carry on the event. Neither Hausman nor Maduro's appointee would attend the event, and we can carry on. So that well, doesn't, yeah, yeah, that's not a, a a strong supporter of Maduro. It was just look, let, just you know, stay, don't 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 get in the way of our event. It's one of those the dog that didn't bark kind of things. That's that's very interesting. Yeah, no, no, definitely, and and well, afterwards, uh, the thing is. We know for a fact that Hausman is perceived by Beijing as a very critical figure of the the, the Chinese government. Uh, so obviously that played into the whole well denying the visa uh, um, um, uh, well, and the whole IADB issue. Parsimal, tell us what you're up to now. Uh, I understand you've helped launch the Andre Bello China Latin America Research Foundation. What is that foundation's purpose? Uh, well, uh, thank you for asking, Jeremy. Um, okay, so uh, the foundation was uh, was founded back in December, so we are a very uh, uh, young organization. And the well, uh, the purpose of, of the foundation is to document uh, the last 20 years of Chinese actions in Venezuela. So, uh, uh, so why do this? Well, two two reasons. First. China has been for the last five, six years trying to stay as far away from the Venezuelan issue. I, uh, I've been tracking uh, Chinese coverage about Venezuela in official media uh, and Jungo Rebao or Jungo Shredai. And um, a, the Venezuelan uh, case has been basically banned from Chinese official media. If huh. you try looking for pronouncements from the Foreign Affairs Office, uh, from uh, 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 MoFCon, Venezuela basically disappeared. And, and then you have to compare that with, well, uh, going back to 2008, 2009, I remember perfectly writing taxes in Beijing and uh, the Shirifu talking about how great Chavez was. And I, I listened to, Ch to Chavez in the Chinese radio, on the Chinese radio, at least four or five times, talking about how great China was. So this was the level of... of, of Venezuela was this example of Chinese uh, leadership abroad, and they they used it both domestically and internationally. So it, it, you, when you see the contrast, it, it it's actually very telling the fact that they they've tried to stay as far away as possible, basically because they don't want to be blamed for the largest uh, humanitarian crisis the region has seen in well since its uh, independence days. So, so what we what we want to do is we, we actually want to bring them again you know, into the fold, and uh, not in, in, in uh, uh, to blame them for what's going on in Venezuela, because the, the Chinese uh, 
actually have also been victims of, of the whole crumbling of the Venezuelan institutions and the high levels of corruption. And the thing is, they, they have nothing to show for after $67 billion. And that is that, well, if you compare that with the whole rhetoric about the Belt and Road Initiative, about promoting... Uh, uh, the, win-win. <laughs> yeah, it's the whole win-win uh, uh, scenario. Uh, yeah, that they within the Venezuelan context, the BRI, the BRI image falls apart. So what we want to do by recollecting all this information is to open up a an informed dialogue with uh, people, uh, well, with with the with the Chinese government or with people close to the Chinese government, with academics, with journalists, uh, in order to learn from what happened in Venezuela. Uh, how not to do things, as a, what China could have done better to have a, a higher level of, of, of uh, accountability um, in terms of the how their, the money was invested, uh, learning about the importance about uh, supporting local institutions, about fomenting the rule of law, because uh, uh, there's no data and no numbers on this Basically, because the the whole China Venezuela relationship was carried out behind doors under the table, there's no access to to the contracts. There's very very little numbers uh, in terms of uh, well how the Chin Chinese community perceived this new era of China Venezuela relations, how the Venezuela community perceived them. So having all that data about the most important relationship China had in the region uh, throughout the 2000s, I think it's going to be uh, uh, um, a, a, a letter of caution for the rest of Latin American countries, but it will also help the Chinese understand why they were so wrong in terms of, of, of going all in, in in Venezuela. So that that would be the reason for you know documenting what has happened with the Chinese in Venezuela uh, throughout the last two decades. So, Parsifal, you were recently in Washington to, to meet with people interested in the work that your foundation is doing. Um, I'm, I'm curious, while you were there, did you, you get a sense that uh, China's position in, in, in Venezuela and in Latin America more generally is well understood by the, the policy community in D.C.? And then I think after that, you went down to Chile, uh, to Santiago, and maybe you could compare. I mean, is, it well, is China well understood by the, the Latin American policy community? Maybe you could con compare and contrast a bit. Uh, well, the, the, there's definitely a, a big difference between both approaches. Uh, my impression from from the meetings I held in DC was that there's a there's a big interest from the, the current administration in knowing about China's involvement in the region. Um, so the interest is there, but in terms of uh, making that the trans translating that interest into action. Uh, I think there's there's no uh, uh, framework or ideas on how to do so. So uh, yes, there, there's the interest, but uh, they're going uh, against China's involvement in the region. And right. This, this this brings me to my, my what a surprise. <laughs> yeah, in Chile, uh, um, this was around like two three months ago. Uh, where Pompeo was uh, uh, made a visit, an official visit to Santiago, and he was basically lecturing the the Chilean government about uh, well the dangers of dealing with China and Huawei and well you know 
uh, you know how the, the the narrative goes. I sure do. <laughs> Yeah, and and actually, well, there was a pronouncement from the Chinese embassy in in Santiago, and there was actually a response from the Chilean Foreign Affairs Office, uh, telling Pompeo that um, uh, that Chile, well, that, that uh, Chile will make his its own decisions in terms of its foreign policy. So uh, you can see this this push by Washington to argue in Latin America. Uh, two letter American governments not to engage with China. Well, that is another topic that we can take on another time. I think that would be a fascinating one. We would love to have you back on the show. Thank you so much for giving us your valuable perspectives uh, on this. I, I'm really eager to learn more. So uh, looking forward to uh, talking to you when you're in a proper foreign ministry office in Caracas under happier circumstances. I hope. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> uh, let's move on now to recommendations. But first, I do want to remind everyone that the Seneca podcast is powered by SupChina. A, a lot of people ask me what they can do to support the show. And I always tell them, they should just subscribe to SubChina Access. Just 88 bucks a year, and you get this fabulous daily email newsletter uh, that is just a treasure trove of links to pieces you should be reading if you want to stay on top of all that's happening in China, courtesy of my friend Mr. Goldcorn and his crack team. And before we get to recommendations, a quick message from one of our sponsors. If you are looking for a challenging summer of significant Chinese language gains and ways to meaningfully connect with Chinese culture, you should look at CET academic programs. CET's China-based Chinese language programs are moving online for summer 2020, so you can spend this at-home summer building your critical language skills alongside a team of dedicated teachers, motivated peers, and tried-and-true intensive Chinese language curriculum. Through small group and daily one-on-one classes with CET's experienced Chinese language instructors, you will be able to make significant language jumps, gain a better understanding of Chinese culture and society, and have multiple opportunities to interact with Chinese culture and engage with locals from all over China. Applications for this summer are due May 15th. Visit cetacademicprograms.com slash virtual for more information. Okay, um, on to recommendations. Jeremy, uh, you want to start us off? Yeah, sure. I've got one uh, is for what I'm going to call medical Twitter. Um, in the time uh, of there's a medical Twitter, medical Twitter, <laughs> uh, doctors, virologists, and epidemiologists, and science journalists on Twitter are proving to be one of the best sources of information about uh, COVID nineteen. Uh, self-correcting because people immediately jump down other people's throats if they get something wrong. Um, and if you follow the right people, it's, it's, a, it's a very good way to get some of the latest data and information and also thinking on this uh, uh, pandemic. Uh, I will post a Twitter is, is list. Is there a list? I'll make a oh, list. Great, great. I, I'm going to make a list before the, this podcast is published and include the link in the uh, description of this podcast. Oh, fantastic. That's great. That'll be super useful. Thank you. So let's call it COVID-19 Medical Twitter. That is my recommendation. <laughs> okay. All right. Parsifal, what do you have for us? Okay. I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to go for a couple of oldies uh, for, well, the people that are interested in, in a little bit, well, Spanish readers and interested in a little bit about Venezuelan political history that could give you an idea of, 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 of uh, the development of democracy in the region. Uh, I would recommend uh, this novel by Francisco Suniaga called, uh, name in Spanish is El Pasajero de Truman. Mm -hmm. So it's Truman's Passenger. 
And uh, they actually, the name comes from, uh, uh, well, the, the, the story goes that about this Venezuelan political figure that was very close to Truman. They had, they developed this close relationship uh, uh, along the years. And uh, actually Truman, uh, when this person got very sick, he sent the, 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 uh, well, the, the equivalent of a first for first ah, Air Force One at the time to Venezuela to pick him up to to have a, a, a medical treatment in the U.S. And well, the whole book is fascinating and it talks about the development of democracy in Venezuela back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Oh wow, sounds great. Uh, and uh, as, on a second note, uh, also a bit uh, a bit old, but uh, maybe you guys are familiar with it. Uh, the Man Who Loved China by Simon Winchester. Oh yeah, all about Joseph Needham. Yeah, exactly. That I, I I loved I loved that book. That was actually I I was reading that book traveling through a uh, on train through Gansu Province, and it was I went to the Mogaoku and was reading about the book. So that it made a big impact on me at the time. I I really love me some Simon Winchester. I think he's just a great writer. Uh, I I know he comes in for a lot of criticism, but I I really enjoy him. I I find that he's. He takes out. I mean, his book on the 1906 earthquake is really great. Uh, his book on the Pacific is really great. I, I've I've really quite liked him. Everything of his that I've read, I've really liked. Thanks. Those are great recommendations. I'm also going to go with a book. Um, I want to recommend uh, the book "Say Nothing," which is a true story about a murder that takes place during the Troubles in Ireland by Patrick Radden Keefe, who many of you probably know from the New Yorker. Uh, this was a recommendation that a journalist friend of mine from Australia named Kate Lamb uh, made. I, I only started it this weekend, but it is just really gripping. I I got it on audiobook. Um, the the narrator's accent is definitely enough to just keep me enthralled with this 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 uh, piece of nonfiction crime, uh, you know, the politics of, of the troubles or something I don't know super well. And it's, it's been a good eye opener for me there. Um, great. Hey, Parsifal, thank you one more time. That was uh, a wonderful, I think, very educational conversation. Uh, Jeremy, I feel edified. You? Yes, I do. Edified. Excellent. Well, that's what we, we aim to edify. So, uh, Parsifal, I hope we can have you on again soon. Uh, sure thing. Well, thank you very much to you both. It's been my pleasure. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SupChina News. And make sure to check out all the other podcasts in the expanding Seneca Network. Watch this space for announcements of new network shows coming soon. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.